Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Sad End of Judas Iscariot. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 27, 3 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Life is a gift from God. Genesis 1.26 tells us that of all the living things God created, human beings are uniquely in the image of God. You might consider David's description of his life, Psalm 139, 13-16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Not only says David did God create me with great care, but that God destined a life for me. The idea of a meaningless life, that wasn't possible for David. Life was precious and it should be for us. You know, it's for that reason that Augustine, one of the great theologians of the Christian church, said that the prohibition against murder in the Ten Commandments also forbade suicide. After all, that's taking our own life. It's murdering ourselves. And since we didn't create ourselves, nor did we plan the days of our lives, hence we are forbidden from murdering ourselves. I'm mindful that when I speak these words, I'm speaking against the culture in which I live. Not only do I live in a country that kills unborn life with hardly a thought, but now it allows the taking of our own lives so that anyone who's either depressed, you know, down to the teenager, may take their life with the help of a medical doctor. It is, and I say this word of warning, it's but a small step from what we already do to taking the lives of anyone who's not considered valuable to the culture. The Nazis, it would seem, have never gone away. But let's get back to suicide and the value of life. The Bible records a number of suicides, and let me share two of those. Uh, the first is in the case of the wise counselor of kings. He was a man named Ahithophel. He turned against his own king, King David, and sided with David's rebellious son. And so when Ahithophel saw that his advice to Absalom had failed, he went out and hanged himself. Ahithophel foresaw that Absalom's decision as to how to proceed and prosecute the war against David would lead to David's victory. And then matters would change. So Ahithophel thought he'd better get ahead of it and simply kill himself. I mean, why face the consequences? Another famous biblical example of a suicide is found in the case of a man named Zimri. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 16. Zimri was the servant of King Elah, the king of Israel. And seeing that the kingly house was corrupt, Zimri killed the king and also the entire royal family. And then Zimri proclaimed himself as king. But Zimri only reigned seven days. All Israel made a man named Omri to be king. And so Zimri, seeing that history had turned against him, simply went into his palace, lit it on fire, and died on the inside. You know, whenever the Bible speaks about suicide, it never mentions it as a righteous act. The men who committed suicide are never God's men. Being without God, they live on their own terms and they die that way as well. I know in our day we speak of suicide using very genteel words. In my country, it's called medical assistance in dying. 
But in truth, there's a vast difference between those who refuse treatment because, you know, they've got an incurable disease and those who ask a doctor to put them to death. Abandoning all hope is the ultimate human tragedy. You know, we can live without a great many things, but we can't live without hope. It was Dante in his Inferno. It's a description of hell. He imagines a sign on the doorway of the entrance to hell, and the sign says, Abandon hope all who enter here. That is, there's no hope for anyone who comes to this place. Whatever hope that you may foster is quickly and cruelly dashed here. That's frightening. And I mention that because suicide. Before the person dies, hope has already died. And as we will see, that was the case of Judas. So we come to Matthew 27, 3 to 4. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. There have been a great many theories as to why the condemnation of Jesus brought about a change of mind in Judas. You know, one of the theories is that Judas betrayed Jesus in order to force Jesus' hand. And the idea here is that Judas would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus had the power to overthrow his earthly enemies. And yet, inexplicably, Jesus had not used that power. So why not? What was he waiting for? If Jesus didn't act soon, his followers would disappear. However, thought Judas, at least in this theory, if Jesus is arrested in that case, he'd be forced to use his power and overthrow the corrupt religious establishment, and then he'd overthrow Rome, and then finally he'd proclaim himself to be king in Israel and the king of all humanity. See, in this theory, Judas was using the arrest of Jesus to force Jesus into action. But when, according to this theory, after the arrest, you know, Jesus doesn't go into action and when Judas sees that, you know, that Jesus is going to be condemned and die and that the disciples are scattered while Judas loses all hope. And with hope in Jesus as the Messiah gone, everything's gone. Judas now sees that his only act is to simply take his own life. He's become the betrayer of Jesus. Now, for myself, I never have bought into that theory. I think it's bogus. I mean, first, Judas has already shown himself to be the man he is. He loves money. He's not motivated by some noble, albeit misguided, loyalty to Jesus. He's motivated by money, plain and simple. That's why he stole from the offering. That's why he insisted on a payout of four months' wages to betray Jesus. He's got no noble purposes. He's interested in getting paid. And furthermore, while it's likely that Judas imagined that Jesus would bring about the kingdom of God, I think he already saw that Jesus was not going to do it in the way all the disciples had been imagining. Jesus had repeatedly told them he was going to Jerusalem, that he would be abused there and killed, and that he would rise on the third day. And all of the disciples heard that, and all of them rejected that, or did they? See, I think what motivated Judas was quite simply his motivation for that which he loved the most, money. Jesus was going to die. Judas could see no monetary upside to that. And so he had followed Jesus. And what did he have in the end? You know, rage was building in him. He wanted money, pure and simple. And like, you know, one of the modern prosperity preachers, he wanted a religion that led to riches. And then he saw that none was forthcoming. And so he determined to get some paltry sum out of this yet. And as far as he was concerned, Jesus be damned. 
And then the man who healed the sick and who raised the dead and who taught about the kingdom to come and about the great love of God for the least of these, this man was about to be damned. And Judas could now see with clarity that a great part of the damning of the Son of God had come through his own hand. In the end, Judas was still a human being. He was still created in the image of God. And while he had sold his soul to do evil, he could not easily deny the voice of his conscience and the inner sense that he had done something that was profoundly evil. And suddenly in the light of this, the money seemed to him the root cause of all of his evil. And so an attempt not to be stained by the blood money that he kept in his purse, suddenly in desperation, he seeks to wash the stain of sin from himself, like Macbeth trying to wash out that damned spot of his guilt. Or like Pilate, who would bring out a wash basin and said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. Judas, he would do the same. How can the stain of my guilt be atoned for, he asks. For the money and the sin are attached to each other. I must rid myself of it. I mean, you think about the prosperity preachers who sell Christ as a means of wealth. Even while Jesus and the apostles repeatedly warn against greed, And the money-centered life, still, these men press on, and in essence, they betray Jesus for pieces of silver, mansions, private jets, expensive jewelry, designer clothes, vacations anywhere on earth, and in the most luxurious of resorts, all that is available. And all they have to do to get that is to twist Scripture and to tell needy people to send them their last dollar and then they promise them they'll get a hundredfold return. They call it seed faith. That's the spirit of Judas. Only in the case of Judas, his culpability in the death of Christ is now overwhelming to him. God has miraculously stripped away all of his pretenses, and all that's left now is guilt, and he feels he somehow must wash away the guilt. You know, the place to start, he reasons, is to return the money. Perhaps the religious leaders of Israel will understand he sinned and he needs redemption. The answer that comes back must have struck him deeply. What's that to us, they ask him. It's not our problem, it's yours. It's an absolute honor to share that this month, our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary a decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family, Visit laughagain.ca and when you're there, consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus. I find Judah's confession intriguing. He says, I've sinned. The first step toward conversion is confession. I've sinned. And then Judas spells it out. I've betrayed innocent blood. I took money to have the innocent one murdered. I've sinned. See, at this point, there's a pathway that can lead to redemption. 
How many deceived people make excuses for their sins? You know, they say, I was disappointed. I was desperate. Other people abused me. I was under pressure. Hundreds of excuses. And what's lacking is stripping away all pretense and simply coming with that one statement, I've sinned. But the words I've sinned aren't enough. That's because the words I have sinned can be stated in hopelessness, faithlessness, despair. Or they can be said in faith and hope, and in that case, we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. You see, these words need to be said, my listener. You hear me now? You must come to terms with your sin. You need to stop uttering excuses. How tragic to never come to those words. I mean, think of the words of the Apostle Paul, Galatians 1.13. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. Or listen again what he told the Corinthian Christians, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Or listen to his speech in Jerusalem in Acts 22 verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And then in Acts 26, verse 11, speaking before King Agrippa, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. See, don't you see? Paul had every reason to take his place alongside of Judas, to confess that he had sinned, and then in utter despair, end his own miserable life. What's the difference between Paul and Judas? Aren't both of them worthy of death and judgment? Yeah, they are. Indeed, when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus plainly tells Paul that what he was doing to the church, he was doing to Jesus. Saul, Saul, says Jesus, why are you persecuting me? So what's the difference between Judas and Paul? I think the answer to that's found in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 14. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted, note this, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, is the difference between Paul and Judas the fact that Paul acted in ignorance and Judas acted with a full weight of knowledge of what he was doing? I think that's part of the answer. If our sin is done with a deliberateness in full view of the truth, it may be that the grace of repentance is taken from us. Paul clearly says that. And by the way, I sometimes warn Christians when they contemplate sinning brazenly, that they ought not to enter into sin in a cavalier fashion, believing that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction at a later time. They ought not to presume on God's kindness. But there is something else here in our comparison between Judas and Paul. Paul added faith and hope to repentance. Judas added only guilt and hopelessness. Matthew 27, verse 5, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Despair and hopelessness coupled with suicide. And a quick aside. Sometimes Bible students wonder how to square Matthew's account with Luke's. You know, in Acts 1.18, Luke says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. So which one is it? Did he hang himself, or did he somehow fall headlong, and so injure himself, and his bowels gushed out? But the two accounts are really complementary. 
Imagine Judas hanging himself and then he dies. Body hangs there. It's decomposing. It's now swelling up. And eventually the body falls to the ground. And in that state, and I've tried not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, his decomposed body spills out. It's a tragic ending. It's horrible to recount it. It needs also be added that there is no reason for the false hope that perhaps in the end Judas was saved. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In hanging himself, Judas actually placed himself under an eternal curse. So why does Matthew tell us this story? And and the answer is surely to warn us of apostasy, of turning away from Jesus after we have come to him. Paul and Judas had almost nothing in common outside of this one fact, that they were both sinful men worthy of eternal damnation. But Paul wasn't an apostate. Paul trusted in Christ for forgiveness, whereas Judas betrayed Jesus for money. It's a difference between hope and despair, between faith and a spirit of no faith at all. So now to Matthew 27, 6-10. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them that potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I find this part of the tragic story of Judas quite perplexing. How is it that the chief priest, Annas and Caiaphas, should have no conscience at all in providing Judas with some spiritual counsel when his soul was in despair? They told him they didn't care less what he did. His guilt was his problem, not theirs. See, I have no doubt that when news came, which told them that he had taken his life, that they never gave it a second thought. Man wants to kill himself, that's up to him. But then these spiritually dead men say, it's not lawful to take the money that, you know, we paid out of the treasury for this act of treachery and now take it back. It's blood money, they say. We can't put blood money into the treasury. Money's unclean. (laughs) You know, how these men concern themselves with what is holy, don't you think? And so in order to deal with the money, they call a group of advisors, and they all agree. Matthew mentions they bought a field. He says it's a field of blood, a burial place for people who are strangers or people who have no, you know, family, people who have no one to take ownership of their bodies. Matthew mentions the field of blood as if everyone reading his book knows exactly where that field is. And there's an ancient tradition, it's a tradition that may well be true, that associates that field at the east end of the Valley of Hinoam. You know, in history, the Valley of Hinoam was an unclean place, for there, pagan kings had burned human beings, sometimes even their own sons, to pagan gods. No one wanted to be associated with that in later days. That would be a fitting place for Judas' blood money. Let strangers who are not a part of the people of God be buried in the most unclean place in the entire country. And that might have been the end of this unsavory story, but not for Matthew. As he often does, Matthew wants to help his readers see that things are not out of order. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Now, for our purposes, we have to overcome a difficulty. Matthew says that this fulfilled word spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, about 30 pieces of silver. And the problem here is that nowhere in the book of Jeremiah do we actually find anything about 30 pieces of silver. But we do find a reference to it in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. You know, in that passage, Zechariah received a pitifully inadequate wage of 30 pieces of silver, and he rejected the money 
and it became a symbol that God had rejected the temple and its corruption. Yeah, that's a long story. In both the story of Zechariah and in the story of Judas, 30 pieces of silver is the story of a sum that's offered that is rejected by God. But why does Matthew say it comes from Jeremiah? Well, there are a number of possibilities here, and one is that Matthew is combining quotes from both Zechariah and Jeremiah, most notably from Jeremiah 19 and chapter 32. All of those quotes have references to the blood of the innocent given for a price. So Matthew combines the two prophecies, and then he does what Jewish rabbis did in that day. They would put them under a heading of the greater prophet. Well, at any rate, that explains why Matthew says it comes from Jeremiah. And that brings us back to the sad end of Judas Iscariot, the man who loved money more than he loved Jesus, the man who had a passion to serve himself and never bend the knee and deny himself and serve Jesus, the man who was finally exposed and who could think of nothing else that he could do than to take his own life. But life is precious. That's why God redeems life. This is also why the high priest of Jesus' day cared little for life. He was unlike God. All of this reminds us that repentance, faith, and putting our hope in Christ is worth more than 30 pieces of silver or any amount of pieces of silver. All money is of no value compared to the grace and kindness of a forgiving God. Thanks for your message today, John. I'd like to ask you about motives. It would appear Judas' motives were in opposition to God's plan. I would think mixed motives are a cautionary note to the follower of Jesus. Yeah. Boy, that's uh, just so important for us to grasp that. I mean, I think we're not going to be able to follow Jesus until we deny ourselves. And by that, it means any lesser motive. We have to place the greatest motive... Christ, his glory, the redemption that he offers, and the eternal life that stands before us. Now, if that becomes your greatest motive, then then gladly give up everything else for that one thing. But if you try to hang on to two things at the same time, well, Jesus said it quite well, you can't love both God and money. I mean, you know, it's going to be in the end, you're going to have to make a decision. And if you make the decision for money, woe be to you, you'll be like Judas. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16, but sometimes, The things we think we know lose our attention. Familiarity can erode our appreciation. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Neufeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 316. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for His glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. 
So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.